Hello, language lovers, and welcome to episode 5, season 2 of the bi-weekly podcast that's one every two weeks, not two a week like it stupidly sounds. On Life in a Second Language, you have me, your host and comedian, brushing up on her Japanese spring day. I'm an American living in London, but Japanese was my major in university and I lived in Japan for 16 years. I personally think that speaking a second language is the closest thing humans can get to having an actual superpower. Well, speaking a foreign language and being able to eat just one tea cake without finishing the entire box is pretty impressive, if you ask me. If you don't know what a tea cake is, you're a fellow American, and a tea cake is a fancy s'mores for people that prefer cooking and peeing indoors. On this podcast, I talk to creative people from all over the world about what it's like living, working, studying, and loving in a second language. Sometimes, let's face it, oftentimes in adult language, so this podcast is not always going to be appropriate for young ears. Now, if you speak two or more languages, hopefully you can relate to what we get into on this podcast, or if you're thinking about dabbling in a foreign language for the very first time in your adult life, we can give you a hint as to what you may or may not be in for, and let you know of some opportunities that you didn't even know existed. people. I hope you are able to safely spend as much time with your loved ones as I am. Looking for Black Friday deals on Amazon for CD players. Seriously, as technologically advanced as Japan is supposed to be, intermediate grammar and vocabulary Japanese textbooks come with CDs and have no download option. I'm also searching the internets for a Black Friday hammer and chisel deal so I can fill out the frickin' workbook. You know, there are three types of people that go to the gym. Group number one, those are the people that love nothing more than going to the gym six days a week to maintain their perfectly ripped muscles and their Lululemons and pert ponytail. They sweat rose water while concentrating on improving their imperceptible to the naked eye, quote unquote, problem areas. Seriously, if you look good in yoga pants, you do not have problem areas. Yoga pants are designed to look horrible on everyone. Seriously, 10 years from now, everyone is going to be looking at pictures of themselves going, why didn't anyone tell me these yoga pants made my clit look fat? Group two are the people who go to the gym because they have to. They have a wedding, high school reunion, or job interview as the gym's janitor coming up. Group three are the people that joined a gym still drunk from New Year's Eve with a grand plan to look better in yoga pants and went to the gym once or twice never to return. Never to return sounds like I've been drinking. Never to return for lots of reasons. They didn't know where to start, maybe. They use machines wrong. They are intimidated by the grunters and the other people that look like they live at the gym. They went in with grand intentions, and it all seemed a bit pointless and embarrassing. Learning a foreign language can feel a lot like going to the gym. 
and like going to the gym, the older you are when you get started, the more foolish and out of your element you can feel. It's an incredibly humbling experience that is challenging on all kinds of levels, but the rewards are worth it so long as you keep your goals realistic. Did you know that scientists have found learning to speak a foreign language can delay the development of dementia by up to five years? It's true. Apparently, that's how long it takes dementia to learn French. According to another recent study published in the Journal of Neuroscience, adults learning a second language may find reading and listening in that second language much easier than speaking. In the study, researchers in Spain conducted scans of 48 Spanish adults lying in the MRI machines to observe brain activity during comprehension and production of the second language also known as the world's least relaxing siesta ever. It is commonly believed that most of our language skills are located in the left hemisphere of the brain. However, this study revealed it's a lot more complicated than that. According to this study, adults that are beginners in a second language activate the same part of the brain used for reading and writing comprehension in their native language as for the reading and writing in the new language. Whereas the more proficient and advanced a person becomes at a second language, that information tends to be accessed on the opposite side of the brain from where their native language is also accessed. I'm not even sure I'm saying that right. <laughs> However, this does not seem to happen when it comes to speaking, which appears to be strictly a left brain activity in adults. I don't know if I agree with that, though. I know plenty of people that seem to have no problem speaking without a brain at all. It's actually kind of hard to get them to stop. The researchers concluded from the experiment that it might be easier for a person studying a second language to choose a language with a similar phonology to their native one. In other words, a language with similar sounds to their native language. So, if you're a native English speaker like myself, you might want to consider speaking something similar to English, like Norwegian, Danish, Australian, or even New Jersey. guest is a dear friend, an Egyptian-American writer and comedian currently in Spain, Tamar Katan. We talk about what it's like growing up in a home where multiple languages are being spoken all the time, what it feels like to move to America at a very young age and being responsible for translating for your parents in the supermarket as a child. How being an adolescent is hard enough, but growing up in a second language seems to complicate things to an unnecessary degree. We talk a lot in this episode about the role language plays in culture and what being a globe charter does to your perspective and how that has played a part in his life and his interlingual marriage. I really, really hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. It's a doozy and we bond over Twilight in a way I never saw coming. And now it's time for the marvelous Tanner Katan. Did 
Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of Life in a Second Language with Spring Day. I am so excited to bring out our next guest, writer, comedian, actor. Please welcome to the show, Tamer Katan. You got it. Yay! Thanks for having me, Spring. It's so nice to see your face. It's so nice to see yours, too. This is just amazing and such a great weekend. Oh, so good. Just I didn't know I could hold my breath for four years. <laughs> I should have been a synchronized swimmer. Because <laughs> we all know there's money in that. Uh, <laughs> but yes, but thankfully, Agent Orange is on his way out. Oh, what a great Agent Orange. That's great. I think Greg Proop said it first, but I just, I just love it. Uh, and a, a human adult is on his way in with uh, the first mixed race woman vice president ever. And yeah. that gives me hope the next few years. Yeah. <sighs> and he's such a team player. He's always been a team player. I love that about Joe Biden is he, he knows it's silly to me that we vote on one person when one person isn't what runs the country. It's the team that they yeah. work with. And Trump doesn't have a team. He just no. has people that do what he tells them to do. And I don't believe that he's any person is smart enough for, for that job. But Biden is a good listener and he knows how to pick and how to surround himself with smart people and how to listen to smart people. And he, and he knows how to say I'm wrong when he's wrong. I don't think we've had many presidents do that. I agree. I'm mostly excited about being able to listen to news on NPR without them using the word extraordinary mm. all the time and it always being a negative connotation. Exactly. Yeah. I told friends, you know, I had friends that kept trying to argue with me about it politically. And I'm like, we don't have political differences. These are ethical differences. I never argued whether or not he was a good or bad president. I don't know enough about politics. I will argue that he's a bad human being. Yeah. And that's, that's the issue. That's always been been the issue. The f- yeah. I don't care about like unless you're taking away freedoms from my friends or freedoms from my family, then yeah, then I've got an issue. But as far as like the stuff he was doing with you know trade agreements and all that stuff, none of us really know anything about that. We're all pretending to know. We don't know what any what the the inner workings of that machine is like. But I do know that the way he behaves and the way he mocks people and children watching the way he behaves and the way he speaks to children and women and military people, he's awful. I remember when he first became president. Translators complained, saying that he was really hard to translate for because most of the time he wasn't saying anything at all. Exactly. It's so nice to have an adult that's relatively qualified for the position that no one should want to have. Yeah. (laughs) Moving on. Uh, what is your native language and what other languages do you speak? Uh, my na- native language is Egyptian Arabic. And I, I qualify it with Egyptian because it's it's different than other Arabic. You know, there's other, you know, like Saudi Arabia, for example, uh, a lot of the Middle East speaks Quranic Arabic, which is like mm-hmm. Arabic from the Quran. And I don't understand them at all. But they understand me because Egypt was like the Hollywood of the Middle East. All the movies out of the Middle East were a lot of Egyptian Arabic actors. So they all understand me, but I don't understand them. But I understand Moroccan Arabic, I understand well. Lebanese Arabic, I understand well. I understand the Arabic in Jeddah, but not the Arabic in Riyadh. It's kind of interesting. So I grew up with that Arabic. But in Egypt, you know, Egypt had been dominated by so many different cultures that even my name isn't Arabic. My name is actually Turkish. Because the the Turks were in Egypt, um, the French were in Egypt. All the architecture in Heliopolis, the town that I lived in, and even the town Heliopolis is Greek. And I'm part Greek. I'm Greek and Egyptian and French. And those were three of the people that dominated Egypt. So like my mom grew up going to a school 
with Italian nuns. And my dad went to a school where they taught him French and Arabic and English. But English was always the bridge language. So we grew up, even though I spoke Arabic, they always were teaching me English because the goal right from day one was to get to America. And when you say they, do you mean your parents? Yeah, my parents specifically, yeah. Because they also, my parents are different religions. My dad's Muslim, my mom's Jewish. And in Egypt, that's like a, a black man marrying a white woman in the 50s. It was dangerous for us. Like I remember my dad was in the military and right. my mom would go and try to do paperwork to get our green cards to get to the States and or visas to get to the States. And they're like, You're you have a Christian name. Why are you, you have a Muslim husband? And she's <laughs> because he loves me and I love him. <laughs> but my dad's mom was Greek Orthodox. She's Greek, 100%. Red hair, green eyes. And then I have an aunt who's blonde haired and I have an uncle who makes Wesley Snipes look light-skinned. But that's Egypt. Egypt is, you know, the top of Egypt, you have some pretty fair-skinned people. And the bottom of Egypt is, you know, mid middle Africa and very dark-skinned Egyptians. And so my family looks like a, a box of chocolates from C's candy store. <laughs> look, we're all different shades. How old were you when you your parents started teaching you English. So, I mean, I started learning English right away. My grandmother, though, was 100% mm -hmm. Greek, and she was an actress and a model and all this stuff. So my grandmother actually had rules in the house where mm -hmm. in the morning, she only spoke Greek. Mm -hmm. And then um, from 11 till 1, she would have friends from France come and have tea, and then she'd speak French. And then after that, she had a friend come in, and they'd speak Italian. And then at the end of the day, you could speak to her in Arabic. Her Arabic was horrible, but she still owned <laughs> Owned, like four little restaurants. She owned two cafes in all girl universities, and then a restaurant in Heliopolis, and then a little restaurant in Alexandria, which is the town where Alexander the Great lived with Cleopatra. So that's why it was named after him. So she was like a linguist. So right at a very early age, I was really interested in languages. And my first hero was my grandmother. So her ability to speak all these different languages was always something that I admired and looked up to. Did she encourage you? Did she push you? Did she teach you herself? She did. I mean, she taught me words here and there, especially Greek words. She really wanted me to know Greek. So mostly it was Arabic and Greek um, when I was in Egypt. And then they were teaching me English, just those three. Your parents were teaching you at home. Were they like just giving you books or was it through TV programs? Or I mean, A lot of it was TV. I learned, here's what's so interesting. It shows you the power of listening versus <laughs> trying to make a kid learn something right mm -hmm. like I never called my mom and dad mom and dad never because really? I was the first child born into a big group of friends so because of that I was a, an alone kid in a house around a bunch of young adults mm. and my mom would say I'm mommy that's daddy and then their friends would come and say hey kitty hey Tino and then I would go hey kitty hey Tino <laughs> So my whole life, I've called my mom and dad Kitty and Tino. You know, when I was two or three years old, their friends thought it was cute. I even used to walk with both of my arms behind my back like a tiny politician. Like I'd walk <laughs> like that. Because my grandmother's friends were all older people. And that's that was the posture they had, you know? That kind of reminds me of To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, I love that book. Isn't that an amazing book? Uh, I think in there that they referred to their dad as Atticus. And everyone thought that was really weird. And they said, well, dad doesn't think so. Or Atticus doesn't think so. So, so that's weird. I totally forgot. You're right. Yeah. I forgot so about that. I think the younger you would be very happy to know that you lived out part of that book. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It was funny. One time I, I didn't 
run away from home, but I left the house because mm -hmm. they had friends over and it was adults, you know? And right. I wanted to go and jump in the middle of the living room and be an entertainer. And my mom's like, Tamar, you know, adults are speaking. They were talking about something political or something. 10 minutes later, my mom's like, where's Tamar? And nobody could find me. And so she freaked out, you know, and, and she ran downstairs and she's like, did you see a little boy? Did you see a little boy? And they're like, was he walking like this? <laughs> And she's like, yes, he was. And she kept like every block, she'd find someone and every other person was like, was he walking with it like this? And she's like, yes, yes. And she finally found me at my pediatrician's office. I was in the waiting room flipping through a magazine. <laughs> That's such an old man thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Go to the doctor. So you learned through TV, you said? Or through a little bit of TV, you but we had people in the house all the time because my grandmother's husband, my grandfather died before I was born and I think my grandmother was a very social person mm -hmm. and in his absence I think she liked to stay busy and have people over all the time and she also used to be able to um, read your fortune in a coffee cup if you had oh. Turkish coffee you turn your cup upside down and then she would read the grains so we always had people over so I think I was always just in the background watching them speak to each other and it was always in different languages one time a, a Greeks would come over because there was a, a tight-knit Greek community and then another time it would be like Egyptian people. And we had a lot of, you know, back then in Egypt, everybody had, you know, servants. They weren't real. I mean, for us, they were a big part of the family. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, we had a guy that would come once a week to beat rugs off the balcony. That was his job. Mm -hmm. And then there was like a lady that was sort of my nanny and she wore a white coat. That meant she was clocked in and then we took it out and she clocked out with it without the coat. It was bizarre. <laughs> So we had like four of those people. So there was constantly different people in the house, whether it was for tea or for food, or it was people that helped around the house or people that helped with my grandmother's business. I, I think I just learned from watching people having conversations all the time in different languages. In a situation like that, where you have so many people and you're the only kid and people are mm. constantly talking or arguing about this or that, or having a discussion. In my experience, kids brought up in those situations tend to talk a little bit later. Oh, really? Because there's so many languages going on, your brain has to put it in different places and kind of parcel it out. And also, too, there's little opportunity because, you know, you're just a kid and who's going to talk to you kind of yeah. thing. I mean, I think it might have been different for me because I always had, you know, we're in this big apartment building. So there are always people there. There was, <laughs> and even the people that worked as servants, quote unquote, the way it worked in Egypt is that everybody lived upstairs in the building had the people that worked with them, like their maids or servants or, or cleaners, they lived in the basement. So they would, when these people would come up and clean the house, I would go downstairs and play soccer with their kids in the street. And it, it drove my grandmother crazy because they didn't have enough money for a soccer ball. So we would all take off our socks and we'd tie knots in them until we made a little ball made out of socks. And then we'd play barefoot in the street. And oh, then, wow. Yeah. And my grandmother would be on the balcony going, what are you doing? Put on some shoes. I'm like, I don't have any socks. Like, so, well, I was always taught, I was always speaking all the time to just different people. And when you started school, was foreign language part of your education? And when did it become a part of your education? I, it's funny. I almost felt like I didn't see a separation in between the Greek language, the Arabic language, and English. Mm. It just felt like I was learning this bizarre hybrid language that nobody else spoke. That, ah. Like when I spoke with my mom, I, 
especially with my grandmother, I would say a Greek word and an Arabic word. In the same sentence, I would use two different words from two different languages. And same with my mom. Language really became like a foreign thing or something I had to learn once we got to America. Then it wasn't for fun. And then I didn't have, if I didn't know how to say something, I couldn't then go, oh, well, here's how you say it in Arabic. Mm -hmm. Here's how you say it in Greek. When I was in America, I all of a sudden I was dealing with people that could only speak one language. And it was a language that I didn't know that well. So it it really didn't feel like I was I was learning a, a language necessarily until or had repercussions for not knowing words until I got to America. And how old were you when you went to America? I was eight. Oh wow. That's very, very young. Seven and a half even. I think I was a little bit I was about to turn eight. After you moved to the States, how long did it take you to to kind of get comfortable with American English compared to oh, what you were used to. You know, it's funny. I made a, I, I remember I made a couple like big critical mistakes and people were not that friendly to immigrants and, and not yeah. very forgiving of mistakes. Like I remember one time I was in class and, and a teacher asked a question. I was really excited about math because math wasn't a language. I could do well in that class because I under, I knew math. And I think one time the question, the answer to the question was six. Mm-hmm. And I ye- and I was so excited that I yelled out sex, and the teacher thought, and all the kids laughed. Right. And so I started laughing. I was like, "Oh, that's so nice. They like me." And then yeah. the goes, "Go to the principal's office." And I was like, "What?" And I was like, I didn't even know what I did wrong, you know? And then I remember another time a kid was beating me up and, and, and I went and I told the teacher, I'm like, hey, this kid kicked me in the head. And she goes, mm. kicked you in the head? And I'm like, no, no, I mean, I mean, hit me. And she goes, well, which is it? Did he kick you or did he hit you? And I'm like, uh, uh, I don't know. And he's like, he's lying. And I wasn't lying. I was just mm. confused and scared. And so that's, I really struggled in the beginning, mm-hmm. but I learned English way faster than my parents did. Because I was really immersed. And because people weren't polite in school. My dad mispronounced a word at his job or my mom mispronounced a word. Usually people didn't say anything. At school, I'd get slapped in the face by a kid. You know, I'd be like, you're an idiot. And I was like, what? Oh, you know, then I learned to pronounce things properly. And all of a sudden I was a little American in an Arab house. So with that experience, when, you know, it must be incredibly frustrating to try to tell a person in authority that someone's violated you and not being able to express that and then being misunderstood and then not believe. Did that have any effect on your personality? Yeah, I I very quickly uh, lost respect for authority. Yeah. And then also what started happening, my learning sped up greatly Mm -hmm. because then my parents started going he speaks english better than we do so then when we go to supermarkets or grocery stores or or hardware stores my parents would go tamar go ask the man this or tamar go ask this lady that so then i became the english speaking spokesperson of my family and then it quickly quickly sped up i already had a pretty healthy distrust in authority at that point and then i got bit by a dog i don't know if you could see that scar right he bit me like that like that (gasps) So there's a scar right here too. He didn't oh, wow. And I had an eye patch on. And then the kids, uh, when I had the eye patch on, the kids kept calling me a pirate. So I didn't know what a pirate even was at that point. So I'd go and hang out at the library, which is where all bullied kids hung out. You know, I read every book about pirates uh, for kids. Mm-hmm. And then when I finished, I started reading the adult books. And then when I read the adult books, I started to learn that pirates 
weren't actually bad guys. The reason why they had peg legs and hook hands is because they served their country and they were war heroes. And when they came back, the government told them we'd have jobs for you, but they didn't have jobs for them. So they did the only thing they knew how to do, which was sail and fight. And But they had laws and they followed those laws. And I was like, wait a minute, these guys aren't bad guys at all. Why, are, why do people talk about pirates like they're bad? Oh, they're misunderstood. I'm misunderstood. So then I started rooting for the pirates and it didn't stop there. Then I started watching Cops and Robbers and I started rooting for the robbers and cowboys and Indians. I started rooting for the Indians. And then when music came around, I was all about punk rock. You know, it was like, it was a trajectory towards this language was actually my launching pad to be attracted towards anti-authoritarian figures. I hadn't thought that pirates were the original motorcycle gang. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. That's exactly how I saw it. I literally go on stage in a motorcycle gang jacket now. I don't know if you know that. I know you have a lot of tattoos. Yeah. And Isn't that crazy how it just molded onto me? No, it makes sense because kids, especially, I understand that as well. I wanted to be the tough kid in my class and you just want people to know you're strong and not to yeah. fuck with you. 100%. You know? yeah. And these messages work and they're they're respected and responded to. I'm always surprised at how young people are when that really registers. Yeah. Because I think I was maybe 10 or 11. Close to my age. Yeah, I really wanted to be Linda Hamilton in (laughs) Terminator 2, except for the crazy bit. Those, I still remember her arms. Oh gosh, they were the best. They still are. That was, I used that photo as my goal for the wedding. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, we almost got there. Um, So you've embraced this pirate kind of, you know, anti-authority thing. I see why you get on so well with my husband now. I love Tim. He's amazing, isn't he? When you first started being comfortable speaking English and, and coming from a background where you don't have just one language, but you have several languages, was it really frustrating to express yourself? I think that's when I started spending a lot of time by myself. And I was also a latchkey kid. So that was like, I mean, both my parents were two jobs each. And I'd wake up in the morning sometimes to an empty house and sometimes I'd come home to an empty house. And so I started reading a lot of books and, you know, I just dove into books. Mm. And then kind of like serendipitously, um, I was in a school where writing creative stories and giving oral presentations of those stories was a big thing. So I started becoming known in the school for these crazy stories that I wrote. So it was like creativity and words almost made people finally start to accept me. At the time, I was playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. So the the teacher called my parents into school and said, listen, uh, I think the kid can write, but his vocabulary of weapons is uh, concerning. (laughs) 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 But they didn't know about Dungeons and Dragons, you know? And he's like, I'm either going to see his name at the end of a movie or the front page of the paper. And I'd rather it be the former than the latter. <laughs> how, did, how did your parents respond? Like, did they understand what your teacher was saying? Or did they? They, they did until the teacher made uh, a slip, which was he recommended uh, Ritalin or some kind of medication. And that's when my, my, my parents were like, you've lost credibility with us now. And no, we're not going to put him on medication and there's nothing wrong with him. I think it was one of the first times I felt like my dad stood up for me. And so I I think I knew that, okay, I'm just weird and my teachers are going to think I'm weird, but I'm not a violent person. I'm not an angry person or anything. I mean, I was an angry person, but I wasn't a violent, I didn't hurt anybody. And 
you know, kind of what you alluded to earlier, like I've learned from doing comedy is when I go on stage and talk about being abused, the thing that shocked me is at the end of shows, very consistently, the scariest looking guys would come up to me and go, hey man, my dad used to beat me too. Or yeah. hey man, it was cool that you talked about crying on stage. I, I, I just started crying myself. And I realized that the tougher you look, the safer you feel. Yeah. A lot of these guys that try to look like tough guys. It's not because they're aggressive. It's because they're scared. I was a scared kid. I wasn't an aggressive kid. I think my parents knew that. They knew that I wasn't an aggressive kid. So the teacher kind of lost credibility with them there. I'm so glad they came through for you on that. Yeah, me too. I mean, my mom's always been uh, a super defender of me, almost too much. You know, like she gave me such unconditional love that I paid more attention or I chased my dad's approval more, you know? Mm-hmm. It's almost like watching uh, Britain's Got Talent and the, the people are like like Simon Cowell's positive comments more because they're harder to get. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, being in a new country and you want your kid to succeed in this new country and you want them to do well. And so when a teacher calls and says, well, we, we think maybe this should be your course of action. I think a lot of parents would feel kind of like, well, I guess we have to, to fit in. And, I, yeah. and I'm really, really happy that they didn't. Yeah. Because uh, I think it, we're about the same age. And so, yeah, giving kids drugs was was very prominent at yeah. that time. Uh, at that point, I was about 13. I just mm. hit my teens. There was a weird thing, though. I remember I remember feeling like it wasn't right. My parents would always say stuff like, don't be American. I was like, what mm. do you mean, don't be American? This country has given us so much and we're here. It's made our lives better. Why do you keep saying don't be American? They're like, no, we're better than that. You know, in America, they just kick their kids out when they turn 18. We're not going to do that to you. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be here when I'm 18. I want to leave. <laughs> well, I don't want to stay with you. But you know, they, even though they loved America... From the Egyptian perspective, it looked to them like Americans didn't have a strong sense of family. Whenever an American would say anything that had to do around family, my parents didn't really respect the American opinion around child rearing or, or discipline or any of that. That's a fair observation for, especially among working class families. Yeah. There's this kind of idea that you've got to have it as hard as I had it. Yeah, you're not. Yeah, I'm not going to serve you. I know several kids my age that were kicked out at 18 or earlier. Or wow. if they didn't leave, they were they had to pay rent, pay for. Groceries. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Kansas City, and oh, wow. I left home at 17. Wow. I couldn't get out early enough. I I graduated uh, a semester early because I just couldn't stand it. Things at home weren't very good. And then I started university, like I graduated in December and started university in January and had like zero idea of how to manage money or, you know, I got a job, but it was really hard because my parents were like, we've never been to college. You figured out like, (laughs) you know, so, and then I'd meet more middle-class families who, you know, gave a lot more help. And I was like, oh, this happens. (laughs) people do this yeah so yeah it's kind of a shock right yeah but i'm glad that you had that support if you wanted it yeah for sure i mean that support was gone pretty quickly once i started (laughs) the more american i acted the the less loving they acted well and Um, what what did they consider being quote-unquote american uh, almost everything I did, you know, the way I dressed, the way I behaved. I, I left home really early too. I left when I was 18 and ironically, you know, and, yeah. uh, but my dad, I think the older I got, the more my, my dad and I's re- relationship really splintered. Like he didn't, my mom just accepted me and because she was becoming really American too. Like in Egypt, she was this very submissive 
person, you know, in America, she got to, to blossom. I think that the people that changed the most in our group of three was my mom and I. But for a Muslim man, a Muslim man in a Muslim country to become a Muslim man in a Christian one, he got smaller and we got bigger. He struggled. I think he really struggled with, with how come you don't respect me the way an Arab boy is supposed to respect his dad? And I'm like, I, I totally respect you in the world of America. I, I give you as much respect as any of my friends give their dads, but I don't take your word as gospel. Because a right. lot of times his word was wrong. It was as if I said, hey, dad, I need help with directions. And he's like, come here, let me show you this map of Egypt. And I'm like, I'm in America. Like, it's not the same map. I mean, there's no pyramids on this map. <laughs> like his advice was wrong all the time. I wonder too, because, you know, with language comes, different languages comes different mannerisms. Yeah. Right. And so I imagine that you weren't showing mannerisms he was familiar with. Yeah. And it would just seem like what the way you're standing or the way you lift, you move your head didn't seem respectful or whatever. Oh, yeah. and then you, did you feel that sense of you've changed 100%. that way? Oh, yeah. I mean, especially because I really love punk rock, you know. And for them, like, I'd wear clothes with holes in them. And he's like, what? Why do you want people to think you're poor? And I'm like, it's not poor. I'm anti-authority, man. And then I shaved my head bald, you know. And my dad's like, what are you doing? He's like, do you know in Egypt, the only time a, a boy shaves his head bald is when he gets bad grades. So his parents shave his head so he's too embarrassed to go outside. So he stays home and studies. If you see a boy my age in Egypt when I was in high school with a shaved head, it meant that kid was a flunky. So bizarre. So, And he didn't, you know, he didn't want to download the new software update. He wanted it. <laughs> He wanted to keep his flip phone. And I'm like, I'm an iPhone. Stop playing snake. <laughs> <laughs> so you said your mom really blossomed. And mm -hmm. how did her personality change? When, and do you think it was because she started making different friends or just was the language more egalitarian? Was it just easier to talk to people on the same level? I think a big part of it was like the only thing they ever argued about was me. And I still mm. feel guilty about that. I think, you know, my mom, there's a saying in the, in the Middle East where they say that a man may be the head of the family, but the, the wife is the neck. And she could turn his head anywhere she wanted. And she did. I mean, the real head of our household was my mom. We wouldn't have even made it to America if it wasn't for my mom's resilience and, and toughness to get the paperwork done. And my, my dad was a quitter. He quit all the time. But my mom was the tough one. Mm -hmm. And um, I think because she saw that he was being unfair to me and, and he had anger management issues and he'd take them out on me. And the, the only time where she would break rules of Egyptian behavior would be to defend her son. Mm. And so she found herself in defending me, which God, mm -hmm. it feels so selfish to say that, but it's, it's true. You know, like she stood up to him and mm -hmm. said, you're not going to treat my son that way. And you're not being fair. And he's like, I am being fair. And she's like, no, you're not. And she'd never say, no, you're not to my dad, you know. But to his credit, too, I mean, he, he wasn't a bad guy. He was just a guy that had bad things happen to him. Mm -hmm. And he didn't believe in therapy. You know, God, mm -hmm. if I didn't go to therapy, I wouldn't be who I am. I'd be a terrible version. Of, I'd be the worst version of myself mm -hmm. if I hadn't gone to therapy. I feel for him now. I think of him as like, I told this to my mom. It's like, I, I feel like, you know, because my dad was abused too. And mm -hmm. I, I felt like my dad was bitten by a vampire mm -hmm. and then it turned him into a vampire and then he bit me. Mm -hmm. And then thanks to therapy, now I can be like 
one of the vampires on Twilight. Like I can, <laughs> I can function. I can live in a society. I can drive a Volvo and live in Seattle and go out in the sun a little bit when it's foggy. <laughs> <laughs> and sparkle. Don't and forget sparkle. On sparkle. <laughs> Yes, queen. <laughs> <laughs> I know way too much about Twilight. Me too. Did you like Twilight? Unfortunately, I did. It's so embarrassing. I loved it. You know what? I, I think it is. I mean, did you come from a religious background at all? It was a very religious no, home. It was so weird. We've always, because we had such a mix, you know, mm -hmm. we literally in one household, we had Muslims, Christians, and Jews in one house. Mm -hmm. And in, in Egypt, you know, the stories of the boogeyman that everybody has in every country. In Egypt, the boogeyman was a Jew. That's the mm -hmm. way they would demonize Jewish people. But at a very early age, I was like, well, my mom's a Jew. She's not like that. Right. I have, I have, relatives in Israel. They're not like that. And then I'd meet my Jewish friends and they would talk shit about Muslims. I'm like, wait, my Muslim friends aren't like that. So mm -hmm. I, I think the anti-authoritarianism might have even the seed of it might have started in Egypt where this sort of um, indoctrination that hap happens under the bubble of a religion. Mm -hmm. I, I was in multiple bubbles. And so they couldn't really brainwash me. But all of those religions also sort of romanticize romantic love in a yeah. kind of, for lack of a better word, puritanical way. Yeah. And I think that anyone with that background can sort of recognize those traits in the Twilight series. Yes. That's what uh -huh. I think is so attractive about it. And I read the latest one. I'm not afraid to admit it. But I think that that's what it is. It, it somehow harkens to those things somehow. I, I, can I totally will, see that. Right? I know, like my brain knows it's terribly written. <laughs> but my heart goes this just ticks all of those boxes that were put yeah. in me so many years ago i totally agree yeah it feels good not in here but in here yeah, yeah. i had no idea i would bond with you over twilight but there we are. <laughs> me too <laughs> yeah and it's almost like my my brain likes organic intellectual food and my heart likes junk intellectual food you know what i mean <laughs> Like my heart yeah. is like, give me literary hamburgers all day. <laughs> and my brain is like, where's the pate, sir? <laughs> <laughs> now, speaking of relationships, you, you are in an interlingual relationship, right? Yeah. Well, my wife actually speaks five languages. Oh, Maybe. wow. Like properly speaks five languages. Wow. And what is her native language? Swedish. But she lived in the South in Malmo. So, I mean, a 20-minute ride over the, over the bridge, and she's closer to Copenhagen than she is to Gothenburg. She's Swedish, but um, speaks Dutch and speaks Norwegian and speaks Spanish and English. Swedish, Norwegian, Dutch, English, and Spanish. She's lived in Barcelona for five years, and you've lived all over the world. Like, you've lived in the States, you've lived in London, you're from Egypt, all of that. I consider you part of the 10% of third culture kid stuff. All of you are too, and Tim, and yeah, I think we're a rare American bird. But I do think we're a growing kind of bird. And yeah. do you think that that was important for you in a relationship to be with someone who had a similar, who's bounced around the world a little bit, as opposed it, to not? It's funny because if you would have asked me like to write down my want list or on any dating app, I would have never thought of it or written it. <laughs> but boy, does it make things easier, you know? Especially now at a time when you have, when dictatorship 
is so much more in vogue, when men behaving badly is so much more in style. Like to have someone who's got a world view means so much more than we have a certain number of stamps in our passport. You know, mm -hmm. it means that we're just much more open to other people and other other ways of solving problems and and kinder governments, more empathetic governments. I, I think there's a lot of education that happened. You know, like Mark Twain used to say, I, I'll never let school interfere with my education. <laughs> I think same thing with traveling. I think there's a lot that you learn as a, as a traveler when you struggle, you know, as like, I don't think I fully understood what my parents did for me in America until I was in Sweden and really wanted to use Swedish at the supermarket mm. and at the end of a long day and a stressful day. And I, and, and then the woman looked at me and goes, what did you say? And I got so frustrated that I just left my food there and went home and mm. I went to bed with a hungry stomach. And I thought to myself, wow, my parents did this with a kid. Maybe, I think there's an empathy, not that you can feel up here, but that you feel in, in here through, through experiencing it yourself that the only travelers can, can feel. I think one of the benefits of having the experiences that we've had is that with kind of a, a bit of a distance, we can say, oh, I, I, I like this from this culture. I like that from that yeah. culture in terms of ways of looking at things and not just whether or not you wear your shoes inside the house. <laughs> um, which I've noticed if you watch any American sitcom, if someone requires you to take your shoes off at the door, they are always assholes. Yeah. They're never reasonable people. <laughs> yeah. Right? So I found... I thought that was a really interesting trope. But um, have you been able to kind of pick and choose aspects of different cultures and kind of incorporate them into your life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially, and, and I think I think there's a connection between that and the anti-authoritarianism, you know, to be able to start doubting the place that you come from and not feel like you're lost in space. You know, it's, mm. I think I've cut two umbilical cords. One was the one that I had in me when I was a baby. And the other one was the one that was connected with me intellectually to America, you know, where it's still, it's, I still love America. I still feel like American, but I, I, don't, I think the umbilical cord has been cut. Mm. I don't, I don't have to require America for nutrition and sustenance anymore. Mm. I, don't, I can feed and learn from Europe, from, uh, from Africa, from Asia, from friends. And I think that's the real way to live. You know, like I feel like a cultural astronaut which is, would be a way better word for immigrants than alien. Like it's a way braver thing to be, you know? So I, yeah, I, I feel like my quality of life is so much more improved, you mm -hmm. know? Like I remember I had this really crazy experience where it was the first time where I felt like being American was like being in a cult. It mm. was when I was in Sweden, I went to college there and then I had, college hadn't started yet. So I was going to movies because they subtitled the movies in Sweden. And there was a Stallone movie. It was Judge Dredd. I don't know if you remember that movie. And I went to the theater just to kill some time, you know, because my friends were all working or in school. Mm -hmm. And it said it was rated X. And I was like, X was Stallone. And I always thought, oh, when, you know, celebrities in Europe, they must be doing porn here, you know, whatever. <laughs> but then I just saw a bunch of people going in. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't feel weird. So I'll just go in. Totally regular movie, you know. Two weeks later, I see a Swedish movie, bunch of kids in the audience, and a guy pulled down his pants and his full frontal penis was on the screen. And I was like, oh my God. And my Swedish friends started laughing. They're like, oh, we forgot you're American. And I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, you guys rate your movies by sex. We rate our movies by violence. And I'm like, I'm like, wait, I agree with that. I agree with their way of doing it, but I never made that choice consciously. 
I never decided that violence was more acceptable than sex. America decided that. And, and they put it on my, inside my iPhone, like the way they put that U2 album that nobody wanted. I didn't ask for that. They just shoved it in there. And then it made me realize there's a lot of things that are in my brain, that, a, a process of growing up in a place that I accept as this is right and that's wrong, but I never had eyes on it. Traveling made me realize that and it, it made me dizzy. I was like, whoa. Like, I, it felt like this is what it must feel like to be Kimmy Schmidt or, or to come out of a cult where I, I felt like I, I feel more free. It's funny. People always go, what's the freest country? I think the, the freest you'll ever feel is when you're in between countries, when, when you don't belong to any one country. But, you know, like what did Socrates used to say? I'm a citizen of the world, not a Greek right. or an Athenian. And I, I think that's real freedom. And you can buy duty free. Yeah. <laughs> that is so interesting. I wanted to ask you, have you ever picked up any superstitions in the places that you've lived? I've picked up one. Yeah. Um, What's yours? Mine is an aversion to the number four. Really? Yeah. That's my because, lucky number. Is it? Okay. Because in Japanese, four is pronounced she, which is the same pronunciation for death. And so like there are no room for in like hospitals or there's wow. no fourth floor or you know things like that and yeah. so and I've just kind of sort of stayed away from it because of that but I no longer have an aversion to opening an umbrella indoors because that's how wow. you dry umbrellas in Japan like sure if you don't open them up they're just gonna dry weird and you're gonna have to buy a new umbrella yeah how about you? You know, it's funny because I think part of being a human being is especially a thinking human being who has the privilege that we have as comedians to have the time to think about our behavior and, and, and why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. I, I think I go back and forth between knowing, hey, this is silly, but then yeah. also this sort of like primal, if a hundred people are running towards me, then I have to turn around and run with them. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's no thinking. It, it's, I have to run with them. Something bad is happening. So it's, is it the frontal brain or the reptilian brain? You know, is it, mm -hmm. the, is it, is it the evolved brain or, or the caveman brain? And I think my evolved brain is like, ah, superstitions. But my caveman brain is like, you shut up, you liberal. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you step on that crack. You know, is that one of the examples like stepping on the crack? Uh, what's bad? No, here's it's from my mom. A big one is when your slipper is upside down, you Ooh. don't leave your shoes turned upside down because I she just said it was bad, it was bad luck to leave slippers upside down. And another one is, um, you know, jealousy is a really big thing in the Mediterranean, the evil eye, you know. So, yeah. you know, when people get pregnant, they go, I, I, I don't want to tell anybody till after the third trimester sure. a certain number of weeks whatever yeah. um not trimester i don't know i don't know pregnant to speak yeah with me i think i'm kind of protective about my news when when good things happen i think it's kind of good like i i think in social media because of that superstition i'm a little bit less loosey-goosey with accomplishments to be shared mm. over a social media platform like i'm a little bit more protective over it i think because my grandmother it's really interesting because the superstitions that I got from my mom or my dad, I can blow off. But the ones I got from my grandmother when I was ah. a kid, those are, they're in me. Yeah, they're too deep. <laughs> I've sort of evolved my thinking about superstitions in that they're not as stupid as I thought they were. You know, it's that pattern that gives you some sort of relief and then puts you in a brain state where whatever you need to do, you can now do. 
Yeah. And so looking at it like that, I, you know, I used to think, oh, it's so stupid. And, and then you realize, oh, no, there's some benefit to it as long as it doesn't disrupt your life. Yeah. I think it's all of us who are just trying to get some kind of control over our lives. The, the reality is nobody knows why we're here. You know, like I used to have this joke where I said, I feel like life is like we're in level one of an escape room. And instead of trying to work together to figure out how to get to level two, we all just get frustrated and start punching each other in the face. <laughs> like, like, no, why are you fighting me? We don't even know why we're here. Like, what, why do you hate me? <laughs> I'm stuck too. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's what superstition is. It, it's, it's like the cultural version of dressing up like a scary person so nobody messes with you. We go, we don't have any control of life. We all know that good things are going to happen and bad things are going to happen. And we don't know when. But, you know, thinking that if we put a mazula on, on our door jam or, or cross our fingers or put an evil eye can lean more good things and push away more bad. But the reality is we don't have any control of it. But that's this speaking. <laughs> <laughs> I should have asked this earlier. What part of the States did you move to? Oh, that was really interesting. It was easier to get a visa to a cold place. So we had originally got a visa to go to Ohio, but right after Ohio, as soon as my dad got to Ohio, then he went to California. My dad went first to mm -hmm. like save money because they were, there was a lot of like, you know, uh, news around Egypt that going to America is overrated. And when you go there, you'll become homeless and all this other stuff. Not completely so, off. Okay. Yeah, not yeah. completely off. <laughs> yeah. So my dad went first all by himself. And I remember my mom used to trace my hand in letters to show him how much I was growing, like oh. on the, on the written page, because we didn't have, you know, FaceTime or anything. So I like, it's like, the opposite of when an animal primes on another animal where like a cow takes care of an abandoned cat like i was like i separated from my dad for two years at a very early age so then when we got back together we never were the same mm. really weird so we started we were supposed to go to ohio my dad was there for like a month and mm -hmm. then on to california and he went to california because there was a bunch of other egyptians there that he knew they were mm. all around los angeles and it made me go oh that's how little italy gets started that's how chinatown gets started the first guy who got there that's where he or she happened to live and then everybody would call them and ask them for advice they'd be like come here you know that makes complete sense so you never ended up going to ohio or living anywhere else in the u.s as a kid just as a kid no yeah, not as a no. kid no all around uh la and hollywood that must have been wild it was like, weird i bet yeah and yeah. knowing that that's where all the movies come from did that ever mess with your mind oh yeah well, especially because we, when we first got there, we lived in East LA. So I was an Arab kid moving to a predominantly Spanish-speaking neighborhood in America. So I used to always joke that I'd, I'd come home from my, I'd, they even sent me to English as a second language classes and I'd come home speaking Spanish. <laughs> like, I, I was like, hi puppy. You know? <laughs> but it was like, but Mexicans were cool. Mexicans were super cool to me. Black kids embraced me. The white kids were like, you're Egyptian, you're bad. That's where Arabs are from. Arabs make our gas cost a lot. So you're bad. <laughs> Why would the kids care about that? You know what? They would hear their parents. I check this out, Spring. When yeah. they talked about gas prices being high on the news, mm -hmm. I'd get anxious. 
because I knew that meant I was going to get picked on at school that day. Oh, man. Because their kids would be at home listening to their dad drinking coffee, reading the paper, going, goddamn Arabs. And then they'd come to school and go, I know one of those. And then they'd act, they'd act out on me. It was really oh, weird. Gosh. But then the black the black kids though I, there was one black kid who was wearing this necklace with Af, with Africa on his a gold <laughs> Africa and he was the toughest kid in school and yeah. I remember I just I didn't realize he was the toughest kid I just went hey I like your necklace that's where I'm from and I pointed to Egypt and he goes you're from here and I go yeah and I go I'm Egyptian he goes Egyptian I thought Egyptians were extinct and I'm like no. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the ones that built the pyramids but i'm still here man we got, I, my mom and dad are here too we're real people we're alive <laughs> and yeah man it was and then that kid like kind of like pulled me into his world and, and he was like oh you're cool you're african you're you're african i'm african and he was a kid whose dad was like really proud of being black and was teaching his kid african history because he knew it was missing in american education and right. so that kid goes oh you're from africa you're one of us and they kind of pulled me into their group and then mexicans kind of did the same they're like you're from egypt they have pyramids we have pyramids we're the same. <laughs> <laughs> and white kids are like we don't have anything cool so and white kids were like screw you and we're, you know <laughs> until it was i kept wanting to be friends with the white kids so bad until i had a bunch of black and mexican friends and then the white kids were scared of me <laughs> Which is the best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I had my lineage is no one's really sure, but the, they think that there's some Russian in the background. Oh, wow. So I got shit for that. Really? But yeah, yeah. Because it was during the Cold War. Cold War. Oh, right? Wow. Like, well, where are you from? It was like Russia. And then they pretend to shoot me. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. awful. But it was just like, well, okay, I guess I won't bring that up. Kids are awful. They're horrible little yeah. people. I but... think, too, kids in America don't understand. At a very early age, I understood that there was a big difference between a government and its people. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, we lived in a place where it, we didn't have free elections. We didn't have, like, there was dictatorial behavior in Egypt, even when I was a little kid. So I knew that the way a country behaved didn't really reflect on the way a person would behave who's from that place. But in America, I don't think kids understood that. I don't think they really understood anything outside <laughs> of their own world. Yeah. I still don't. I agree. It's I an island. It's just so big that people forget it's an island. So many people never leave it. What I find is really interesting is when I went to Ireland... Uh, for the first time, all of the Americans that I met, it was like their first time traveling abroad ever. And they were kind of terrified. But at the same time, they would say like, well, I belong here. Yeah. You know, my great, 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 whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. you know? But I could just tell that they were terrified of being somewhere where the constitution meant nothing. Yeah. What are some of your language milestones? Oh man, learning Spanish has been really cool because it just opens up the whole world, you know? Like walking around New York, you know, there's so, just such a huge Puerto Rican, Dominican population. There's even a street in the Lower East Side called Loisida. And I was like, Loisida, what is that? It's Spanish. And then I went, no, it's just, it's Spanglish for a Puerto Rican <laughs> saying the Lower East Side, Loisida. And then the street is spelled L-O-I-S-A-D. <laughs> Like it's a word, but it was really cool to walk down the street and be able to look at murals like Puerto Rican murals and be able to build like, I know what that said. I, I can read those things now. So like words or sounds became words and words became 
concepts, you know? Like, Spanish has kind of been ruining things for me in a way. Like, Jeff Bezos, it's just Jeff kisses. <laughs> <laughs> like like all my life i've listened i've i've loved um julio cesar chavez right right great fighter his name is julius caesar what the <laughs> julius caesar like it's a and it's funny because you go that's a great name for a fighter but for a baby like yeah. this, this is my baby julius caesar oh where's your wife oh she's breastfeeding julius caesar what <laughs> <laughs> so, that's been really cool it's been it's been cool when sounds become real things you know it's like clay becoming art or colors becoming a painting it's i love that and do you think you'll take up any new languages i mean it, it's you know it's funny because a lot of people think like oh it's harder to learn language when you get older but i've been using this duolingo app mm -hmm. man it's good I think it's really, really good. And I think comedy is helping me learn language too, because I think like when I was in Sweden, it was Swedish is very sing-songy. Mm -hmm. Swedish. And so it made me feel silly. I'm like, oh, I, I can't pronounce it that way. It feels like I'm singing. So then I noticed that when I'd get drunk, my Swedish friends were like, your Swedish is great. You speak way better. Because when I was drunk, my inhibitions were down. Mm -hmm. But then when I became a comic, my inhibitions went down. And so I, I think as a comedian now, I'm not ashamed of going in a store and trying to speak Spanish and being wrong. The mm. way I was that one time in Sweden when the lady said, what did you say? And I just left the store and left the food. Mm -hmm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that now. Now I'm like, okay, well, I got it wrong. I'll try it again. You know, I've bombed on stage and I've made that joke work. So I'll try <laughs> Spanish today. And if I get it wrong today, I'll figure it out. I like apps a lot. I really like Duolingo. Yeah. Do you use any other language app? Um, right now, I've just been using that. In the past, I used Rosetta Stone. And I've used, I'm a really big fan of using movies and subtitles. But once you get to a certain level, like mm -hmm. um, Netflix right now is really impressing me as an American company that puts tons of um, in-language content out. Like I really, really like watching stand-up comedy from all these different countries and I'll watch it with subtitles because it, it's cool to see what people make funny and what idea because there's a lot of concepts that are just human concepts you know mm -hmm. like superstitions maybe four is a, a lucky a bad luck number in japan but it's 13 in america but that's not different that's the same that's human you know and so i i think watching films with subtitles and and listening to rap music with subtitles and things like that is really good for me too have you heard of lyricstraining.com no what is that they take a music video and you can choose your your level of beginner, intermediate, or advanced, and they'll take words out of the song and you have to fill them in. No way. What they're, what they're singing. That's right? great. Yeah, we used it a lot when I taught in New York. It's really fun. That's and cool. They use all sorts of songs and they're not necessarily kid friendly either. It's really interesting. I really recommend it. So that's super cool. You know what I like too is did you have you gone into Brixton uh, markets? Oh, I love Brixton Markets. Yeah. Did you see the, ban the banners that they had up with different languages? Oh, Remember? yeah. I saw these things that were so cool because it wasn't just learning a word, how to say a word in your language in another language. It was concepts that don't even exist in the English language. A Turkish word for the feeling you get the first time you see a woman and your heart starts to raise. Or, 
or an Iranian word for uh, the way uh, the moon sparkles on water. It's just like these interesting concepts where you go, there's not a word for that in English because those languages are so much older. They also value different concepts differently. Yeah. I think I have a book of that. Um, oh, cool. There's, I think there's one in Swedish where when you want to cuddle up with your friends or family in the cold or something. Yeah. Hugge is like a thing in um, Denmark too, where like, it's like a philosophy, a life philosophy where it's all about being chilled out and enjoying life and taking time to smell the roses. And so they use, I'm not pronouncing it probably, but I think it's Hugge. Danish people are really going to make fun of me, but it's, it's like a really cool concept and a word that doesn't really exist in English that is a huge part of, of like Danish culture. That's amazing. I wish I remember the name of the book, but... Oh, um, yeah, I would love to read that book. I love stuff like that. I'm sure it's on my Kindle somewhere, on my evil but wonderful Kindle. Oh, this is amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thanks for having Emma. me. It's been so fun talking to you. I, I want to have you back on. Um, sure, I'd love to. Um, so uh, is there anything you want to plug or for the show? <laughs> Uh, just after the pandemic, come see me. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you? What? Where are you most active online? Instagram is probably the place I'm most active, and at Tamer Cat. So it's T A M E R K A T, or my website. And then I'm in Europe now. So which I've always wanted to to be in this part of Europe and do comedy here. I like the comedy in Europe more. I feel more free, and mm. so I'm I'm really excited to see what happens after COVID. And I, I'll say this one thing. One of my friends made me really happy the other day because he's a social psychologist and he said, you know, politics is really messing up the human experience because you don't measure the progress of humanity in four-year blocks. You mm. measure it in hundred-year blocks. And in the last hundred years, we've been consistently going in the direction of progress and equality. But every four years, we go back and forth. He goes, and the other thing is history may not repeat itself, but it rhymes. And he goes, mm. so we had a pandemic before in 1918 and it was the worst case scenario and it lasted two years he's like so what was two years after 1918 and i went oh my god it was the roaring 20s and he goes yeah he goes so comedy's not going anywhere uh, comedy is just about to explode as is every art form people are going to want to live this we are a caterpillar in a cocoon going oh no is this it it's not yeah, yeah. we're about to fly i've always felt comedy's not going anywhere because we're the cheapest thing you can ever produce <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the only reason PBNJ of entertainment. <laughs> the only reason music's still around is that people drink more when they listen to music than when they listen to comedy. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. Like, our beer selling days are merely paused. Yeah, I think I agree. We're gonna be back soon. Yeah, so. I think so too. All Yay. right. Stop Thanks recording. so much for having me.